So I've had a lot of different jobs through the years, uh, from working at a recreation center, trying to keep kids from running each other over with go-karts, that was a fun job, to um, delivering pizza all around West Warwick, Coventry, Warwick, lots of big areas, and then uh, down in Florida, I used to deliver steak to people, like cooked steak and potatoes and bread, yeah, steak out, that was quite a thing. Um, delivering home heating oil, that was fun, driving in like some like 1950 truck that you had to double clutch to get it to change gears, it was fun. Um, then uh, some fun repairing and repaving of driveways and parking lots, that was a nice little season in life, to uh, driving a uh, box truck around Boston the North Shore, down the South Shore, all the way down to Plymouth, delivering pastine, good Italian food. Everyone needs Italian food in their lives. So we used to, I helped with that. Say thank you. Uh, that was one fun job. Then, of course, uh, the range of ministry jobs, uh, from picking up trash <laughs> to hospital visitations to event plannings, um, of course, counseling, and then the labor of studying and studying and teaching God's word. Some parts of our work feel really meaningful and purposeful. Other parts are just stuff that needs to get done. And such is the nature of work. Some parts of our work world is just stuff that needs to get done and it doesn't necessarily have a a fulfilling sense to it. But God has created work to be um, that we're to be engaged with. He's created us to be engaged with work. It's part of what makes us tick. God made us to be workers by nature. In the garden, Adam and Eve tended God's perfect world. All the things that were provided to them, they tended that garden. And it was satisfying, that tending, and the usage of their skills to exercise God's dominion over what God had made. One day, when all the matters of this life are over, we will worship and serve God forever. Now, you're in John 4. I'm going to read to you from Revelation 22. Just just listen to the words of Revelation 22, verses 1-5. through It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on every street, or excuse me, every side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. The word there is litreia. has the idea of worship and service. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. On these bookends, the garden and the eternal kingdom, on these bookends of human existence and experience, there is great joy and satisfaction in our work. However, in between the first garden and that glorious eternal kingdom, work has been marred by sin. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the result of that was opposition from the ground itself. Remember? Thorns and thistles. So the work that was satisfying to Adam then became a little bit more taxing because the ground then stood in opposition. And then you can see other sinful oppositions like uh, people overstepping their boundaries and liking to press down on other people. You think about slavery and oppression. These are results of the mar of sin on our society related to work. And then throw in the mix our own laziness, the ease of distraction, our own greed and dissatisfaction with our position, and work, rather than being a blessing, can become a burden. You and I have all tasted that, that burdensome side of work. Perhaps you've also tasted the satisfying part of work. This morning, as we watch and think about Jesus and His enlisting of His disciples, pause for a moment and ponder. Are you one of those disciples? Those that see have experienced the grace and mercy of God and who follow Him? Are you one of His disciples? As we observe this scene of Jesus enlisting His disciples to join in His work, it doesn't matter what your profession is. In other words, this enlistment of Jesus isn't about full-time Christian ministry, though it can be. You could be a retail worker. You could be a chef. If you are, I like you. You could be a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a nurse, a mechanic, or a technician of whatever variety. This enlisting into Jesus' work doesn't mean that's the sole, exclusive, and only thing that is called to But Jesus enlists His disciples to be part of the work that He has started. Uh, What's interesting and very important to note about this enlistment into this work is that Jesus' work is completed. And yet its application is ongoing. The work that Jesus came to do has been completed. And its full impact continues. 
And while it has not been completed in its impact, that completion is sure. We are called to join in the labor, but our labor is based upon the work that's already complete. So let's take a look, please, at our text. And the first concept we want to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus' sowing of seeds produced an immediate harvest. Jesus' sowing of seeds produced an immediate harvest. Look at verses 28-30. through We already remember what happened. The encounter of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We remember the interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We pick it up here in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. Jesus' conversation with this woman was so impactful that she immediately began proclaiming a message of His uniqueness. There's something about this man. You've got to come and see Him. And that is the the call that she has to her fellow Samaritans. He sowed seeds in her and people began flocking to Him. Now Jesus uses uh, this sowing kind of illustrations and analogies on a few occasions. I'll remind you of a couple just to kind of have you think about it for a moment. Remember the parable of the sower? A sower went out to sow and he sowed the seed. Some fell on hard ground. Some fell on rocky ground. Some fell on thorny ground. And some fell on good ground. All of them had the... The, the different impacts, right? The, on the hard ground, the birds of the air come and take that seed away. On the uh, stony ground, there's a quick, quick uh, response, but eventually it wilt, wilts away. Uh, the, the thorny ground, it comes up, but the weeds choke it out. But that, that fell on the, the good ground, grew and multiplied and produced a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. Jesus didn't with that say, so be careful where you sow the seed. He said, sow indiscriminately. Just throw it out there. Throw it out there. You don't know what's going to happen. Throw it out there. You don't control what happens. Sow the seed. What seed? Well, we'll talk about it, but obviously you know it's pointing to, holding out who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus offers, and the satisfaction and life change and eternal destiny change that comes as a result of what Jesus has done. We're sowing the seed. So the concept from that parable is to sow indiscriminately. Just sow the seed. Well, later on in the same chapter of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, Jesus tells another parable of sowing seed, but this time the concept is about the seed growing. So I would call it the parable of the growing seed. With that one, it says that this farmer goes out and he sows the seed and he goes to bed. <laughs> and while he's sleeping, some stuff happens with that seed that's sown. And eventually, it grows up. He doesn't know how. He, he's, he's not a, a botanist. He's not an agriculturist. He doesn't know all the, the ins and outs of the science. Why did that thing happen? He just sowed the seed. And while he slept, God caused something 
to grow. And so one of the concepts you get out of that is to sow the seed patiently. Or better yet, sow the seed dependently. Because you don't control what happens with it. Sow the seed. Let God do what only God can do. In this account, here in John chapter 4, Jesus sowed seeds in this Samaritan woman's heart. In this instance, there was an immediate response. He sowed seeds in one lady's heart. It's like multitudes started coming to him. It's breathtaking. This group of people, despised by the Jews, looked down upon, hated by the Jews, and they sent it right back at the Jews. They hated them and despised them. And yet, this one conversation where Jesus lets this lady know all the labors of your life, all the things you're toiling for, what have they resulted in? You're going to have to keep coming back here. You'll probably be all alone. Probably have to come out in the middle of the day again. And it's going to rot. But I have something for you. The one who gives real gifts, the one who is the real gift, stands in your presence. And I offer to you right now water that will never run dry. You'll never have to labor for it again. I'm giving you everything you need. It'll be within you a well of water springing up unto everlasting or eternal life. Well, after their conversation goes on, she realizes there's, there's got to be something happening here. That there's something unique about him. He is, he's a prophet. Maybe he's the prophet. When that prophet comes, he's going to tell us everything. And then he has the conversation with her about uh, the, the controversy between Samaritans and Jews. You know, this mountain, that mountain, whatever. He tells her the truth with that. And ultimately, she comes to recognize him to be the Messiah. She goes off and tells people he sowed some seeds and it was bearing a harvest. Now, there had been other seeds planted in that region before Jesus sowed that seed in the Samaritan woman's heart. You think back to the first five books of Moses that they held to as Samaritans. And all in the five books of Moses, there are seeds sown about Jesus. Aren't there? Isn't that what Jesus said? Those five books of, the Mo- of Moses testify about Me. So there are seeds that way. And they probably had some interaction or some reception of some of the things that John the Baptist was saying out in the, the wilderness. Uh, it tells us in John chapter 3 and verse uh, 23 that he was right in that region as part of his uh, prophetic ministry as he was preaching the Gospel, telling people about who Jesus is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that's only the first part of the message. We know the ultimate part of the message is Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so there's these seeds sown in the the books of Moses, in John the Baptist, but ultimately the seed sown that made the, the harvest come to a full force is that Jesus sowed the seeds of the Gospel in this lady, this lady in the middle of the day. So we see the harvest coming in. So now, as we look a little further in the text, not only do we recognize that when Jesus sows seeds of of the Gospel, they can be an immediate harvest, 
we also notice this, that Jesus' disciples were not anticipating this scene. Jesus' disciples were not anticipating a harvest. They were not anticipating a group of Samaritans coming to be adherents to, receivers of, worshipers of, the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verses 31 and following. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Eat, eat, eat. They were urging him to do this. They were just journeying here. They were journeying to Galilee, according to John 4.3. They weren't planning to hang out in Samaria. They were just passing through. Jesus is sitting at the, the well. The disciples went to grab food. They come back. Rabbi, eat something. You need some strength. They were urging Him. It's, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they didn't just say, Rabbi, eat once. They said, hey, eat something. Eat something. Eat something. Eat something. It's just a, it's a continuous barrage. Master, Rabbi, eat. And He finally says, guys, I'm okay. I have I've had something that has sustained me. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And of course, their response is just like the Samaritan woman's response when she said, hey, when, when, when Jesus said, I can give you water and you'll never have to draw again. She's like, oh, give us, give me that water so I never have to, have to come, never have to come back to this well again. Give me the water. Thinking physically. Well, the disciples did the same thing. Hey, did you give him something to eat? Did you give him something to eat? Maybe, maybe he had a cliff bar in his back pocket. I don't know. He's not hungry anymore. I know he was hungry. We walked with him. We're all hungry. There's something more here going on. Now, Jesus now, in verse 34, starts to speak of His real mission. Now, this point that we're going to talk about here, this third point, we're going to spend the most of our time. So, as we spend some time here, some of you are going to think, I hope that this will end sometime today. And I assure you, I give you hope, confidence. We will end today. But we're going to spend some time here on this third point because this is the heart and the meat of what we need to understand here. Jesus speaks of His real mission. Look at verse 34. Will you read this with me, please? John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He starts off with my food, what really sustains me, what really sustains me. And here we can hear an echo, perhaps, of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, which you'll remember Jesus quoted to Satan after he had fasted for 40 days, was hungry. Satan comes along and says, Ah, if you are the Son of God, command these stones that they will become loaves of bread. And to that, Jesus responded, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
We kind of have like an echo of that here in our statement. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish or accomplish His work. Does, does this statement mean that Jesus didn't need to eat? No. Jesus, fully God, was also fully man. And He needed to eat and drink and sleep. When He didn't eat, He was weary and hungry like we are. When He didn't drink, He was parched and dehydrated like we are. If He didn't sleep, He would be slow-moving and physically turned down like we are. His body needed all these things, but it was not necessary for this moment. He had what He needed. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. We're going to spend a few minutes here thinking about this. This will of the Father and the accomplishment of His work. Part of Jesus' mission was a teaching mission. So we're going to look at a few passages. So let's follow along with me, please. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Two books to your left. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Part of Jesus' mission was teaching. And we have another one of these kinds of scenes where Jesus is ministering, healing people, casting out demons, teaching, and people are flocking to Him. Just Hordes and hordes of people flocking to Jesus. And then He spends the night in prayer. And the disciples wake up and they're like wondering, where in the world is Jesus? So they go on the hunt to find Him. Look at verses 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place. And there He prayed. And Simon and those who were with Him searched for Him, and they found Him and said to Him, Everyone is looking for you! And He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And He went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. You see this scene. Humanly, you see hordes flocking to you, you're like, ding, 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 success! Hallelujah! I don't want to miss this moment. But Jesus' mission was broader than gathering a crowd. And so, He leaves this place. I came out for this, to preach and to teach. And so He goes and He preaches and teaches in synagogues all through Galilee. His ministry and influence were spreading because He came out to preach and to teach. Look now at John chapter 1. So part of Jesus' mission was teaching. Part, secondly, of Jesus' mission was to be a physical, visible demonstration of God's nature. In other words, as He was going around teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons, all these things that we're so enamored with, as He's doing this, it wasn't just for the sake of the information being passed, though that was important. And it wasn't just for the sake of the disease healed, 
though that was important. Or the demon cast out, though that was important. It was to demonstrate to a watching world that God is real, alive, and what does He, what is His nature like? And Jesus, the Word made flesh, put on display for a world at that time, and those of us that read ever since, what God is like. So look at these verses that are familiar to us, starting in verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. For from His, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right hand. He has made Him known. He has declared Him. The word is that of an exegesis. He has put Him on display. He has unfolded for us who the Father is. So part of Jesus' ministry was teaching. Part of Jesus' ministry was displaying who God is. Part of Jesus' mission was to perform works demonstrating His Messiahship. Take a look at John chapter 5. Look at verse 36. We've read this on a couple of occasions in our study of the Gospel of John so far, and we will read it again. Verse 36 of John 5, "...but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John." For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. They're declaring something of my Messiahship nature. Look at chapter 9. John chapter 9. The context is a man that's born blind. He was blind from birth. Verse 2 of John 9. The disciples asked Him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God might be displayed in him. Look at the next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 25. Jesus answered them, verse 25 of John 10, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So part of Jesus' mission was to display His Messiahship. Okay? Teaching, displaying the nature of God, and then displaying that He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. These are all parts of His mission. But, the ultimate mission is related to finishing the work of redemption. That is the ultimate mission that He came to fulfill. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, ready? And to accomplish His work. The word accomplish in the Greek is teleao. means to bring to completion, to make perfect. The author of Hebrews does something wonderful 
with this word, teleao. Journey with me. Don't lose focus because we're doing a word study. This is way better than a word study. What we're talking about right here is the absolute essence of Jesus completing the mission. So head over to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Chapter 2 to begin with. I want to talk about this from a couple of different angles in the, in the book of Hebrews. And the first angle that we want to convey of this completion or accomplishment or perfection of God's work is that Jesus' experience of taking on flesh and enduring suffering for us made Him a perfect high priest. We will not be able to to talk about all the implications of that, just the general concept here, but Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse number 10. It says, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, say the word, perfect through suffering. Complete, perfect, full, accomplished. Look at chapter 5. Similar concept. Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verse 9. It says, And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey or believe or understand or follow Him. Those who believe Him. He is made perfect. Alright, so that leads us to a question, a theological question. You know, based upon our study of the Gospel of John, and based upon other things, that Jesus is God made flesh. And God is perfect. So yes, we know this. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering or made the perfect uh, made perfect through the things that he that he endured. The concept is he became the perfect redeemer, having taken on flesh, having faced the adversity, having laid down his he's the perfect redeemer, and he's the perfect high priest, which means he feels with us in the midst of our weaknesses, because he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so he he bears and understands and feels all those same concepts. And so when we come to Him, He sympathetically receives us, cares for us, represents us. This is who He is. He became perfect. Because of what He endured, these common elements of life that we endure, we recognize He is for us in it. So, the book of Hebrews is first telling us that Jesus is the perfect Redeemer and Jesus is the perfect High priest, the complete, that's the teleaos, teleao, that we talked about back in Jesus' words. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He is that accomplished work. Well, a little further here, the book of Hebrews does something else to further help our understanding. It uses this same word to talk about what the law 
and our human efforts could not accomplish. Take a look at chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. So again, we're using the same Greek word that Jesus used. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish teleao, His work. To accomplish it. Well, Jesus is that accomplishment. All of our yearnings and tryings, even with the law of God that has been granted as a gift, cannot produce that perfection. So take a look at verse 19 of Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7.19. Will you read this with me? For the law made nothing perfect. You just stop right there. <laughs> the law made what perfect? Nothing. Look at chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And look at verse 9, please. You start in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Okay, here's where we want to pick it up. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that, what is the next word? Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Cannot. So all those law keepings, all of those offerings, all of those sacrifices could never bring to completion the one that offered them. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It could not bring the accomplishment. Is everyone clear? Jesus is the accomplishment. The law could never produce the accomplishment. Our efforts could never produce the accomplishment. Alright, so then he takes it one step of further clarification. This is where you, know, you, you, you take the... You know, the doctor says, is that one clearer or is this one clearer? And he moves them back and forth. I hate that, don't you? The first few are great. But then when you get to the fine-tuning of those things, it's like, I don't know, I feel really dumb. Can you show me one again? Can you show me one again? Uh, let me see two. Let me see one, two, one, two. It's like, I don't know. I'm going with two. I couldn't tell you. Well, in this honing in, there is no confusion. Hebrews chapter 10. What we're going to see in verses 12 through 14, as we read and see, Jesus' blood brought all of this need to a perfect completion. Verse 12. Hebrews 10 and 12. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did He do? Why did He sit down? The priests stood up all day long because there was another sacrifice to make. This high priest offered one sacrifice for all time and said, I'm done. And he sat down. That's not the end of this. This gets even better. He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
Listen carefully to verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being declared holy. He has done this. He is the completion. He substitutes that which could not complete us and He accomplishes it with His perfect sacrifice of Himself. And then two chapters later, He makes this incredible statement to really clarify it. He uses the same word for accomplishment or perfection, again, to refer to those who are redeemed. In uh, chapter 12 and verse 23, He calls a group of people, listen carefully to this, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous, they're righteous because they have been made perfect. How? He made them perfect. How are people made perfect? So I'm going to reference something. Head back, please, to the Gospel of John in chapter 17. And then continue to keep your mind open, please. John chapter 17. And while you're turning there, listen to this. How are people made perfect? And I'll answer that by reminding you of something that took place in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul speaks of Jesus' work of filling us to the full with the fullness of the triune God. I will quote it to you now. Listen carefully to what Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says about ordinary Colossian Christians. These people that recognize that their only hope was Jesus. Is that you? So this statement is made about a person like me whose only hope is Jesus. Listen carefully to these words. For in Him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him. The word filled there is plerao. It's like you've got a glass. And like it's not halfway up. It's not, it's not like the half full, half empty question. It's not even three quarters. It's not four fifths. It's to the absolute top. Filled to the brim. Even you see like an overflowing. I prefer the translation, you have been made complete in Him. But the concept is Jesus was filled with the, the triune Godhead. And He fills with the triune Godhead those who have come to Him. Those who are in Him. He's filled us to the full. He's completed us. Who? Him. The completion of Jesus' work was so certain that in His prayer in John chapter 17 that we're going to read a snippet of for a moment, He speaks of it as having done. The completion of Jesus' work is that of making us complete or perfect. Remember this about Jesus and His mission. He never fails. He never fails. John chapter 17 and verse 4. He's speaking to the Father. I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. Well, it was still... The absolute finishing of that was still... Two chapters later, look at chapter 19 
Now we see Jesus on the cross in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. In verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill, there's our word, teleao, to complete the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar of a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, What does it say? It is finished. The word there is tetelestai. You can hear that, that related concept of teleo, completion. But it's in the perfect tense, which means that something that was done has a constant. Really, if you read this and understand it, it is when Jesus said, Tetelesta, he said, It stands finished. The work that the Father has given me to do is absolutely, utterly completed. There's nothing else to do, it's finished. Who did it? He did. Head back to John 4. We're going to finish up with just a couple of concepts here. Remember we started off by talking about work. We talked about being enlisted into this this work. As we look at the last few verses briefly, what we want to notice is this. All of the sowing and reaping that he's going to talk about here and that apply to how we live our lives, all of the sowing and reaping is related to this finished work. This completed work. So start by looking with me at verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Does this mean we're in December and it's like four months until uh, you know, it's, it's April? So, you, know, you, you sow in this time and it comes up. It's still four months until you harvest. Maybe. Or maybe it's, there are four months from sowing the seed until you reap the harvest. Maybe. But that's, he's not even getting into the agricultural part of it. Don't you know the, you know the typical thing is you sow something and later on you harvest? Yesterday I was sowing some seed, or a little earlier today I was sowing some seed, and I want you to just take a look. Look at all of these people, this multitude moving in from the towns to here. Look at what's going on. The harvest is right now. Look! Don't miss it! Sowed, so seed sown, harvest reaped right here. Right now, verses 36 and 37, he goes on, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. The sowing of the seed can sometimes sprout up unto eternal life in short order. And the pay, the pay, the wages, is related to the joy of someone receiving eternal life. And the one who sows and the one who reaps, they rejoice together. Because it's not about an apple. It's not about the wheat. It's not about the barley. 
It's about a person who has gone from dead spiritually, headed to an eternity separate from God, to alive, to live, to receive from Him now life, and to receive from Him uh, to Himself life forever. That there's rejoicing in this labor. Verse thirty-eight. Now, I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus enlists us to join in this labor. It's based upon a work already accomplished. It's very similar to you know, 1 Corinthians 3. One sows and other waters, but God brings the increase. This is all based upon the work of God in Christ. And it's applied based upon the work of God through the Spirit. We don't control it. We don't own it. We have the privilege of being a part of the process by doing what? Come. See a man who knows every single thing about me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And he loves me anyway. Come and see this man knowing everything I've ever done. And he's still offered to me life. Come and see the One who is known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come and see Him. This is our labor. It's not always super fun, but it's also not that hard to point. We don't point and say, hey, look at me. Look at how I've changed. Look at what I do now. I, did, I used to do this and now I do this. So much of gospel testimonies is all about me and my changes. And I tell you, like that's so absolutely, uh, uh, utterly dangerous. Because what, what if you fall back into some of those same patterns again? What if you, what if you cater to your drunkenness again. Oh no, I must not be saved because it's all about you. Up and down, up and down. Maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not saved. This is not the Gospel. The Gospel is look. Look and live. Look at Him. Believe Him and live. It's about Him and what He has accomplished. So the people come. Look at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. That's not an insult. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. It's not because some guy was up there droning on or getting excited and then getting soft. That's not why we believed. We have heard Him ourselves. How do you hear? Thus saith the Lord, right? What does God say about Himself? How are they going to hear? How are we going to tell them? I submit to you, very similar. 
What is our labor? Our labor is to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These people, this is the first expression of this type in this area, right? We have seen that He is absolutely, in fact, the Savior of the world. Why is that concept so important to this context? Because this is a Samaritan culture. They're not the Jews. The, the salvation offered through the Jews, through the Messiah, has rippled out and overflowed to the Samaritans. And now we know the Gentiles. Here we are, standing in this place. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Asian. It doesn't matter whether you're from Eastern Europe or South America or South Africa. It doesn't matter if you're from Australia or the Philippines. None of that makes any difference about this. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or a Samaritan. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have the chance to enter into a labor that's already done. He's done it all. We just point to Him and say, look at my God and look at my Savior. Look what He's done and look what He offers. This is our privilege. Jesus' work has been completed. The mission of applying it and seeing it worked out in history is still ongoing. In other words, not everyone that's going to receive that salvation has already received that salvation in time and space. And so, there's still an application of the work of Jesus Christ that's already been accomplished. But, it will be fully done. Look at the next cha- two chapters later. John chapter 6. Just very quickly, verse 35 and following. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never do what? Hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What a masterful craft work. This Gospel of John is. He's tying in all these things we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks by talking about lifting up and hungering and thirsting and life that comes through this Son who has been sent and fulfilled the work. Look at what He's just done in this masterful conclusion of this. But what is He asking? What is He telling us? The work. It's been done. It's accomplished in Christ. And it's going to be fully accomplished. So friends, whether you are working at Walmart, driving a truck, pumping gas, working at a grocery store, maybe you're an executive, work hard. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. And remember that you've been called to reap a harvest for which you have not labored. While work can be a burden, there's much joy in looking at the finished work of Christ. Jesus has labored. 
He laid down His life to secure our eternal salvation. He's, he's labored to secure an eternal life for all who call upon Him. So while you work, point to Him. Share Him. And rejoice. Rejoice in the fruit He will produce. There's a scene, we're not going to take the time right now to look at it. There's a scene in Revelation chapter 5 that depicts the full realization of the harvest. When people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are gathered singing the song of redemption because worthy is Him who was slain, who gave His life to provide life. That's sure. It is accomplished. It will be fully applied. So you know what that means for you and me? We don't have to strive and try to make someone beat them. Beat them down till they finally say what we want them to say. Till they finally say that prayer we've been trying to get them to say. Beat them down. Finally, I will mercy you to the ground. You're going to say uncle, and then you will say the prayer. You don't have to do that. Keep pointing them to Christ and rest in His ability to save people like He saved you. He's done it. He will complete it. He is good. Let us pray. Father, thank You that we have the privilege of joining in this harvesting of the finished work that You've accomplished through Your Son for our good. Please, please let us rest in You. Trust in You. And we pray that You'd bring many, many to Yourself. We look forward to seeing friends and family, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, co-workers, neighbors, people, people that need salvation. We look forward to seeing you bring in that harvest. Help us to point. Help us to point and rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.